0: Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia and I'm Jade and this episode is on skin colour and global beauty ideals. We'll be hearing from experts featured in Eleanor Rossini's critically acclaimed documentary The Illusionists. And if you're a regular listener, you may recall from previous episodes, The Illusionist is a feature-length film exploring the impossible beauty standards set by media and advertising, and includes interviews with thought leaders, magazine editors, politicians and activists in eight countries across four continents. We're also going to introduce the excellent and freely available teaching resources our colleagues from Striped at Harvard University have produced, two of which are directly related to skin colour, with one on UV tanning, And the most recent case on skin lightening. Ah, yeah. You were an expert reviewer on that, weren't you, Nadia? I sure was. I'll tell you all about that later in the episode, Jade. Cool. And just as a reminder for our listeners, Striped, or the Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders, is a public health incubator led by Professor Bryn Austin at Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health. Nadia spoke to Bryn in episode four about how appearance links to public health. And you can also hear Bryn's Appearance Matter 7 conference keynote talk on the future of body image and public policy in episode 8. And if you haven't checked it out already, have a listen.
1: One of the tragedies that's happening at the moment is that we're losing bodies as fast as we're losing languages, just as English has become the lingua franca of the world. So the white, blondified, small-nosed, pert breast long-legged body is coming to stand in for the great variety of human bodies that there are.
0: That was the esteemed writer and feminist Susie Orbach speaking on The Illusionists. As Susie just explained, global beauty standards for women are becoming increasingly homogenous around the world. Alongside weight and shape, global beauty standards also dictate that skin colour is key when it comes to attractiveness. White skin is undeniably the global standard for female beauty, a standard that's completely unattainable for a large proportion of women around the world. Right, although there is some variation by ethnicity and location. On one hand, the ideal for Caucasian people in the West is typically tanned, yet crucially still white skin. However, on the other hand, for people in the rest of the world who have naturally darker skin, the general rule of thumb is the fairer or lighter, the better. Before we get to the inequality between these ideals, an important question is how did these specific skin colour ideals come about? Scholars have pointed to a number of historical, social and cultural factors. For example, in the West, having a tan is often symbolic of good health and a privileged lifestyle. That includes frequent sunny holidays to exotic locations. In contrast, in countries across Asia, South America, the Middle East and Africa, Sun-tanned skin is often seen to suggest the necessity to be working outdoors in low-paying, labour-intensive jobs, and consequently, fair skin indicates financial and social privilege. Yeah, a bit like how it used to be here in Europe 100 years ago, pre-the 1920s. Yes, and side note, did you know that many attribute the shift in skin tone ideals in the West from fair to tan skin to the fashion designer Coco Chanel? Wait, wait, what do you mean by this Nadia? Was she really tanned? Well, during the 1920s, Coco Chanel was a total fashion icon. She was like the celebrity of the day. Okay. So the story goes that she accidentally got sunburn on a cruise in the French Riviera in the 1920s. And then when she got back, the precedent for tanned skin for women as a beauty ideal was was set. Oh, really? Interesting. So what was we saying? Okay, yes, let me get back on track. So although generally the ideal for white people is to be tanned and the ideal for people of colour is to be fairer, This really isn't a simple case of everyone wanting something different or wanting something that they don't have. For people throughout the Global South and for people of colour more broadly, this really is a much more complex issue. Right, and this is because the idealisation of whiter skin is deeply rooted in colonialism and slavery and contemporary racism and colourism. And we should probably say here that colourism, also sometimes referred to as shadism, is where people of the same race experience discriminatory or preferential treatment based solely on the shade of their skin colour. So for example, several studies from the US have shown that lighter-skinned African-Americans have higher incomes, higher educational attainment, greater occupational prestige and shorter incarceration sentences than darker-skinned African-Americans when all else is considered equal. Right, and what is even more problematic is that globally we are sold these skin colour ideals, which privilege whiteness. Let's hear some more from Susie Orbach.
1: I think we see racism in the media because we see racism everywhere. And so I don't think it's different in Western countries than the racism that still exists in those societies. Where I think we've got a very much more serious problem, and I don't want to underestimate how serious it is in the West, is where we see the selling of the westernized image as the badge of modernity in India, in Singapore, in China, in Japan, where the notion of how you join globalized culture is the taking of a Western body. Now, the reason this must be happening is both an internalized racism, imperialism, a form of body colonialism, but it's also effective because it's driven by huge industries that, from their perspective, want to make one world to sell their products. So it's about creating... An image of modernity or the brand woman that can be reproduced over and over and over again without any regard to local culture. I wish I could answer that there was a country that had a kind of model practice vis a vis bodies. But part of the process of consumer culture as it eats into every community is that it robs people of their own experience, of the legitimacy of their bodies.
0: As Susie highlights, industries, namely beauty, fashion, advertising and media industries, play a large role in reinforcing and perpetuating social and cultural values ascribed to skin colour ideals. So now let's hear how globalisation and consumer culture plays out in more detail. First, We have Dr. Rushi Anand, a professor at the American Graduate School in Paris, describing the impact of globalisation of beauty ideals in India, followed by activist Nadine Mawan, giving an example from Lebanon.
2: I grew up watching movies in the 70s and the 80s where actresses like Rekha or Raki or Hema Malini, you know, the nice hourglass figures, you know, padded, sort of more what I call traditional looking. Um, embodying a certain image that was close to home, what home was then, pre-globalization. Now what we're seeing is well, a trend towards, what we can say is an imitation of the westernized body image, but I'm not fully convinced that it is a marketing of this image um, that's being you know, exported to India. It's a couple of things happening at the same time. One is of course definitely us being bombarded with you know, ads, media, films from the West as a result of globalization and openness. And therefore, one is more sort of receptive to the changes in the way we want to be, which is more more globalized, more westernized. And not to forget that most Indians still have um, sort of, um, internalized racism where the Western body image is definitely more superior. Because remember, India is is an ex-colony of the British where we've always had this fascination for the white man or the white woman and how she looks. So there is, I think, one of those um, uh, trends happening where we are trying to embody this westernized, modernized image because that's where power comes from. Power uh, in society, power in the Western world, power in your job, power with your own beauty. But what we're seeing today is, a not, is, an, is an ideal beauty type that's almost unattainable. And um, it, it's dangerous, um, just because it's not a natural beauty that exists, but it's a beauty that's imposed on the Indian woman uh, to want to be like. Unattainable for most part of those Indian women that are not born with fair, young, and thin, which I think pretty much describes what, uh, what is considered beautiful today. So, for an average Indian woman, I mean, when you say fair, it's all relative. North Indian women are lighter skinned than South Indian women for the most part, but everybody is trying to aim at the light skin. So the North Indian woman who's already got a lighter skin is aiming at being as light as the, the British colonial woman or the American woman that she sees on TV or a white model. Um, it's unattainable. That's when you go out and seek products um, that are extremely dangerous to your to your skin, to your health, to your uh, to your own well being. Because there's no way that you can um, sort of change the color of your skin. That's what you're born with. Why don't we just accept that brown is beautiful or black is beautiful? There is a sense of colorism that I think is unattainable. Right. So the Indian men have also become a target of the beauty industry but I would argue to a much lesser extent than women, Um, I would argue that because I think that the Indian men I I think still have a choice uh, whether or not they're falling for it. I think they're less, less victimized by their inability to achieve those standards. Why do they still fall for it? Why are they still being targeted? I think there's lots of um different things going on here. One of them is a legacy of colonialism. You cannot escape the fact that um till today, whether for men or women, uh, we are sort of you know imprisoned by our belief that the you know the white man was was better off, was better looking is is better <laughs> in some ways or another. and I think that. Um, the in, that intersectionality of, you know, gender, class, colonialism, um, and the power that all of this gives you in society uh, pushes men to a lesser extent, but also into the same sort of um, uh, b- the beauty myth. Um, so you have, for instance, you know, cream that was targeted, uh, targeting women for the longest time, called fair and lovely. Uh, there's there's a counterpart for the men now. It's called fair and handsome, or yeah, fair and handsome, and that's Imami that launched it in 2005, uh, with exactly the same sort of reasoning: is that all right? You have it all. You're male, um, so vis-a-vis the women, you already have the power. But vis-a-vis the white man, you're probably still not as well off. So if you want to go that notch up into the power hierarchy, you know, being fair might help. And so whether it's for for a job or whether it's for uh, matchmaking, or whether it's for appearing as more westernized, modernized, sometimes what the West calls civilized, it, it helps to be whiter.
0: And it's a fantastic phenomenon. Why is, you know, straight blonde hair so common in Lebanon? Um, it's because they want to look like white women, or they're, they're under the illusion that they are white women, and that, you know, white female standards of beauty, uh, you know, cosmetics, uh, the, those products that sort of lighten up your skin, something like fair and lovely, um, that they put on, on national television here, you know, over a few weeks, your skin color will go from dark to being very light. Um, these
2: are all products of Uh, you know, the United States economy that's built on Hollywood and the entertainment industry.
0: And a lot of the little girls in Lebanon grow up wanting to be you know,
2: exactly like them.
0: That was Dr. Rushi Anand and Nadine Mawad speaking on The Illusionists. So as these two examples suggest, the beauty industry seems to play a particularly potent role when it comes to skin colour ideals. In addition to selling products and services that alter the colour of our skin, their marketing strategy is underpinned by a that promises happiness, wealth and success if their products are regularly used and purchased. Frequently, the same companies that sell tanning creams in the West sell skin whitening or lightening products across the global South, profiting from women's dissatisfaction with their skin and desire to achieve an unattainable ideal. Right. And especially for people of colour, the ideal sold by beauty brands is often a hundred percent impossible to achieve. Lots of the adverts beauty brands use in countries in Asia, South America, the Middle East and Africa feature models who are either Caucasian or have a Caucasian parent, so are much lighter skinned than the general population. That or alternatively, models are photoshopped so they're several shades lighter. Seriously? That's crazy. Like telling people to aspire to a different race? Yes, and so, again, the social repercussions of these marketing strategies disproportionately impact already marginalised, disadvantaged groups. Gender studies expert Professor Gail Dines highlights these inequalities particularly eloquently, speaking on The illusionist.
3: When you take a kind of feminist perspective to understanding the way in which um, women's self-loathing impacts on women all over the world, I want you to think about what percentage of cosmetics are made by women in developing countries living on basically subsistence wages. So here you have women in the West relying on cosmetics and clothes made by women all over the world who are earning barely nothing, who themselves cannot afford any of the products that they're producing. And then on top of it, what's really interesting is women in developing countries are often themselves targeted by racist companies who sell skin whiteners, for example. Now, the whole idea of skin whiteners, and Avon Products does a big um, market in Brazil selling what's called Renewal, which is basically a product that promises to whiten the skin. And you have women whose children are barely fed and barely clothed, spending, I think it's $40 on these bottles of Renewal. And of course, it makes sense because what's been told to women, and this is not just in the West, but all over the world, is that your way out of poverty, your way out of the working class is to marry up. And indeed, given the way that capitalism works, you have a better chance of marrying up than you do of making money and getting out of poverty on your own. So women buy into cosmetics also as a way to become economically mobile to find a richer, wealthier guy to get them out of poverty. So you have a kind of global exploitation cycle going on here of women, poor women, making products for women in the West, some of themselves who are poor, some of them who are wealthy, who themselves are being targeted by corporations to buy products, to skin-whiten themselves, to get themselves out of the very sweatshops they're working in in order to make these products.
0: Okay, so I think we've broadly covered why women around the world aspire to skin colour ideals and heard some of how these ideals are grounded in and contribute to some of the serious social inequalities. Let's now turn to how skin tone dissatisfaction and behaviours associated with altering one's natural skin colour impact individual and population level, physical and mental health. Okay, so starting with tanning, It's well established that UV exposure from indoor and outdoor tanning is positively linked with numerous types of skin cancer. According to Cancer Research UK, melanoma skin cancer is the fifth most common cancer in the UK, with 42 new cases diagnosed every single day. And yet, intentional tanning behaviours remain extremely common, especially among young Caucasian women. For example, a multinational review by Weiner and colleagues in 2014 which included studies from the US, Australia and Europe, found that among university students, 65% of women and 25% of men had used indoor UV tanning in the past year. And research by Denison colleagues in 2009 has explicitly shown that women pursue harmful tanning behaviours in order to enhance their appearance, despite a full awareness of the risks associated with UV exposure. The dangers of indoor tanning are so severe that commercial tanning salons are now banned in Australia and it would be great to see other countries follow suit. Turning to skin whitening, according to the World Health Organization, more than one quarter of women in Japan, Nigeria, Togo, Ghana, China, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines and India report to regularly using skin whitening products. And, like tanning, efforts to lighten one's skin also poses serious and numerous health risks. Here, the cosmetic skin lightening products are often highly toxic, as they can include chemicals such as mercury, bleach and hydroquinone, which can cause cancer and kidney damage, as well as skin discoloration, irritation and scarring. Due to the toxicity of these ingredients, some countries including all of those in the European Union, Ghana, Australia, Japan and the United States have banned their use in cosmetic skin lightening products. However, products with these ingredients are still widely available elsewhere in the world. And what's hugely problematic is that many of these products that still include these harmful ingredients are produced in rich Western countries where the sale of these products are banned. And then they're exported to lower income countries where, going back to what Professor Gail Dines highlighted earlier, the message is that in order to escape poverty, white skin is imperative. So, despite the legal bans and health risks attached to the use of some skin lightening products, it has been much tougher to counter the social messaging that tells people of colour that lighter skin is better than darker skin. Related to some of the research that we do here at CAR, several studies have shown that skin tone dissatisfaction is associated with poor body appreciation, negative appearance evaluation and body dysmorphic symptoms in diverse participants, even after controlling for ethnicity, age, ethnic identity attachment and self-esteem. This link has also prompted our colleagues at Striped, the public health incubator dedicated to eating disorder prevention at Harvard, to develop two teaching case studies related to skin colour, one on indoor tanning and the other one on skin whitening. The Striped Harvard teaching cases cover a range of issues related to appearance dissatisfaction and eating disorder prevention, including weight stigma, cosmetic surgery, and the sale of harmful diet and weight management products. There are currently eight cases available on the Striped website, and the skin whitening case is soon to be released, bringing the total number of cases to nine. Written by professional case writer Eric Weinberger, each teaching case is a fictionalised composite of real-world experiences of individual consumers, community stakeholders, public health researchers, practitioners and advocates as well as industry professionals. The cases are designed to engage students in real-world dilemmas, problem-solving and teamwork to tackle current high-impact issues in eating disorders prevention. The learning objectives for each case are specific to the topic and range from strategic negotiation to designing a social marketing campaign. We've used them here at CAR and found them incredibly useful in our lectures and workshops. Our students report that they've really enjoyed them and have learnt a lot from them. Great, and as we mentioned, there are two teaching cases relevant to today's episode on skin colour. The first, called Some Skin in the Game Negotiating the End of a Campus Health Menace, is on indoor tanning. Our colleague from CAR, PhD candidate Matthew Ridley, will read the synopsis of this case.
3: Fictitious Colburn University boasts many amenities for its students, including cafes, a gymnasium and UV tanning salon Campus Tans. Meredith Tang, a law student originally from Australia, and Barbara Holly, a public health student, kind of believe that this insidious industry has infiltrated campus life and worse yet seems to be promoted by the school, or at least it is allowed to advertise on campus. Soon these students turned activists began a campaign to evict the salon. However, they quickly discover that evicting campus tans may not be as easy as they thought. As the story ends, the student activists sit down to a meeting with school officials and the owner of the salon to negotiate an agreement that protects the health of Colborne students while balancing the interests of diverse stakeholders. In this case, students learn crucial skills in strategic negotiation to address complex public health problems.
0: Excellent, thanks Matt. Next, we are lucky enough to have a sneak preview of Stripe's newest teaching case on skin whitening, which is due to be released next month. And you were an expert reviewer on this case, weren't you Nadia? No, not just the glamorous podcast queen, Jade. Clearly. So, for this one, we want to give you a taste of the case itself, so we've got a couple of members of the car team to read an extract from the teaching case. And so, just to give you some context, the scene is set at a US church youth group, and Dr Kreisberger has been invited to speak to the children on skin whitening as part of their youth project on healthy living.
4: Kreisberg held up a tube of fair and lovely cosmetics that Pradana had slipped her before they entered the church, and after handing it to the girl, told her to pass it along the circle. The humming and murmurs suggested that she had struck something, like a shovel that went smoothly through dirt and then clanged when it hit a rock.
1: My mother uses something like this,
4: one of the children said. My sister, said another.
3: My grandfather says this is very bad for you.
4: Each child who spoke was apprehensive, except for the girl who declared the game they were playing opera was crazy. And now she said that she didn't see what the big deal was. It's a tube, she said. Like toothpaste. Like toothpaste, Kreisberg repeated after her. A daily activity, like brushing your teeth, yes, the girl said. Show me how you see it used each day, Kreisberg said. The girl went to the centre of the circle, formed by the chairs, taking the tube from the last child who had it, next to where Pradana was sitting. I can't read all of it, the girl said. Apart from English words like fair and lovely, most of the script was in Thai, since it was one of Pity's tubes borrowed for the day by Pradana. It's from Thailand, Regina told the girl, where I was born. But tell us why it matters, why you want to be able to read more of the words. Is it for mornings or evenings? The girl's question meant something. There were, after all, so many products for so many occasions. A cleanser for bedtime, for the morning before going out, or combined with sun protection and an SPF factor, or more, and clearly the girl wanted to know what toilet she was meant to perform. There were liquids or creams for freckles, or for near the eyes, and even sleeping masks, an older person who was more likely to have more products. It's the mornings. Hearing that, the girl pretended to step out of the bath, stroll to a sink, admire herself in a mirror, dry her face, and apply three creams on her cheeks, nose, neck, and chin, the first of which was the fair and lovely. It seemed clear she was mimicking what she must have seen her mother, or older sister, do each morning for years. Opera, Kreisberg said. Tell us what you're feeling as you do it. I feel pretty, the girl said. Opera, Kreisberg shouted. Big emotions, big demonstration. What are you feeling? The girl started to exaggerate her motions as if she were a vain or bedazzled princess, quite pleased with herself, and she shouted in a kind of singing voice. I feel pretty. Many of the children laughed. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks to our budding actors within CAR. Georgia, Ella, Nicole, Nick, Helena and Matt. What a talented bunch. I mean, if a career in research doesn't work out for any of them... Act in then. (laughs) (laughs) And a special thanks goes to Bryn, Eric and the team at Striped for letting us exclusively preview the latest teaching case, which will be out very soon. Remember, the cases are freely available on the Striped website. So if you have students, colleagues, friends who might be interested in learning about and discussing this issue or others related to body image and disordered eating, we urge you to check them out. Thanks also goes out to Eleanor Rossini for allowing us to use more sound clips from her film. Seriously, if you haven't seen it yet, you need to as soon as possible. 100%. The Illusionist is available to buy or stream online for the price of a couple of cups of coffee. It's also possible to book a screening with Eleanor Rossini, the film director, via the film's website, www.theillusionist.org. Remember, you can get in touch with us at car underscore UWE we would love to know your thoughts on the podcast and this episode. Also we just want to take this time to thank our regular listeners we really appreciate your support. We would also really love and appreciate some more support via uh, more reviews and ratings on iTunes five stars please <laughs> We um, are really enjoying this podcast journey and we really want to reach as many people as possible and the iTunes ratings really make a big difference in helping us achieve this definitely. So join us next month when we will be talking about social media and body image. Excellent.